the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is, it is long overdue, and it's my joy, and it's our family's privilege to be here uh, with you this morning. Um, as Roger said, we were here as a family about four years ago, and by the look of it, um, many of you haven't been there, uh, weren't there when we were here uh, last time. So it's, it's great to see the church grow. Um, uh, not only numerically, but just the, the way that you guys come together and minister to each other. And we've been in the receiving end of many of that, uh, not only the past um, four years, but also over this weekend as well. So we want to thank you uh, from bottom of our hearts. And um, just want to say that uh, you guys have been a great encouragement. And... Um, I really wanted to come to this church uh, for last few years. As I said, it's been long overdue, and we just didn't have a right um, way to, to get here uh, at this church. And so, um, again, I'm extremely happy this morning uh, to be with you and worshiping the Lord together. Um, by way of a, a brief update and kind of an introduction uh, about ourselves and our ministry, um, Again, my name is Daisuke. Um, if you want to say it right, if you look at my name, uh, it's spelled with extra, I mean, the U that is completely silent. So some people call me Daisuke or something like that, but it will be silent U, so that would be Daisuke. Um, and uh, one of my friend, uh, pastor friend, told me, that it should change my name's to, name to D I C E dash K, and that looked like a more of a rapper than anything else. But uh, uh, you can call me that, um, and that would be easier to remember. And my wife Marsha, and I have three boys and a girl, as um, Roger said. Uh, Nicholas is studying at the uh, Calpoli Slow right now, and Noah will be going to a freshman year in college at Emory University in Atlanta. So we'll have a West Coast and an East Coast uh, locations uh, to visit. And, um, and our third is Nathan. He's 14. And Sophie uh, at 11. So that's our family. And uh, we've been in Japan uh, for the total of 16 years now. Um, first 12 years between 2000 to 2012, we were in Osaka, Japan. Uh, I was involved in pastoral ministry as well as training ministry. We're having a small seminary there and uh, ministering to, to train men for the, the, the ministry. And then we had a transition years uh, the, between 2012 to 2015 where I had an opportunity to do uh, my doctoral, doctoral work at the master's seminary. And, um, and at the end of it, we were able to connect with you guys and being sent out to Japan again, this time to Tokyo. And we've been there for the past four years since 2015. The bulk of current ministry, at least up to this year, uh, was the training ministry. Uh, the training ministry started uh, even while I was actually studying here in the state side. Uh, it started in 2013. I was traveling back and forth maybe about five, six times a year, just uh, um, visiting like-minded local church training people in uh, those churches uh, for the, the work of ministry. And that continued on. We uh, officially became a, a school by the name of Japan Bible Academy. And that's where I'm uh, ministering at. And uh, we currently have uh, five locations throughout Japan that we're teaching at. And we have about 70 students total in those five churches combined. And at the current moment, we are mostly training lay people, uh, both men and women, 
to equip them, uh, to teach them the Bible and equip them and so that they can do the work of ministry. And that's been a um, great joy and also a, um, hopefully uh, bringing a many blessings to the local churches because typical Japanese church um, has a only single pastor who's basically doing every single ministry that you can think and imagine. And so the pastors usually don't have time really to invest in training lay leaders, unfortunately. And so we're coming alongside those local churches to help them train people in the local church so that they can be equipped to do the work of ministry. And in return, that will lighten the, the ministry work of the pastors uh, in those a pastor in the local church so that they can commit themselves to the, the study of the word and be a better preacher and a minister of the word uh, in those local churches. And at the same time, what we want to do is not just to train lay people for the sake of local church, which is also a, I mean, which is a really big deal for us as well, but uh, our ultimate goal is to, to train men for the work of ministry, uh, especially from the pulpit as a leaders of the church, elders um, of the church. So... Um, we're, while we're training lay people, we're handpicking men in those uh, group of 70 and um, watching them closely alongside of the, the, the local pastors and uh, uh, bringing them into a next level training which uh, will uh, really focus on how to um, study the word and how to preach the word and how to minister to people. So we're at the stage where uh, we're just about to start that uh, latter part of program, uh, seminary level tr- training. Um, we're finishing up three locations this year, and out of those three locations, we have five or six men that we have identified. Those will be going into a seminary level training, uh, hopefully, Lord willing, in the beginning of next year. So that's kind of where the the training ministry is going, and it's been a gr- really great uh, joy to see how the Lord really um, worked out many of the opportunities. Um, as we started this new ministry with Japan Bible Academy, we really had no connections whatsoever. But through, you know, just the, the, the divine arrangement, uh, the outworking of the providence of God, I uh, got to meet with several pastors and they spread the words and we uh, were able to identify pastors who are like-minded um, and wanting to do ministry in a biblical way. And so um, that's been a great uh, privilege and encouragement for us. Um, and also, uh, with the, the new phase of ministry, it's partly it's outworking of the training ministry in this sense that um, if we just teach at the classroom, and if we're not doing the actual pastoral ministry, then we're just a theorist, right? And we're just dropping the, the doctrines that I have gained from the U.S. side and just telling them what to do. And that doesn't really uh, work out well or it becomes a great model. And so we always wanted to have a local church that models what we teach. And in many ways, you guys are that model. And, um, and so we're kind of trying to, trying to see, uh, if there are any churches that we can identify as a model church of what we teach. And as Roger said, over the past four years, uh, since we've been in Tokyo, we were really looking hard to find a church that we can call our, um, that church as a home. And uh, we've been to many different churches. Uh, personally, I've listened to probably more than enough sermons online that we may be able to go and so on and so forth. But the, uh, to make a long story short, the end result was that we really couldn't find one. And, and there are many different reasons, but two things, two things really stood out. The one, is, one is lack of biblical preaching. Most of the churches that we have been to and I've listened to, the pulpit was extremely weak. Uh, they were not expounding 
and ex, uh, exposing uh, to people the truth of the, the Word of God. And so the, the teaching was shallow if it's biblical at all. And oftentimes it's just a story uh, using parts of the scripture to talk about something that the preacher wanted to talk about. And, and the other really is the deeper issue to me, which is a philosophy of ministry. And Japanese churches usually do not really have any philosophy of ministry, uh, which actually is not really the case because unless you have a philosophy of something, uh, you don't do anything at all, right? But they don't have a written out or thought through philosophy of ministry so that um, what they do really shift by the waves of different doctrines or the trends that comes in. And so that the church is not really being built up with the foundation of Christ with the biblical truth. And that's what we sow. And when, when that really is, if, if the, the, the issue is the philosophy of ministry, and when you go into to be with that church, it becomes difficult because you become distraction for the, the local church because you have certain set of philosophy and, and we have certain set of philosophy and they don't agree with that philosophy. And so we were having really difficult time trying to find a church home. Oftentimes, um, I've been telling uh, others that the Sunday, unfortunately, was the hardest week, uh, furthest day, hardest day of the week in, in our life as a family. Because the churches were, you know, oftentimes painful. And although the fellowship was sometimes good, but at the same time, um, you know, overall church expense was very sad. Uh, I've, my wife and I often shed tears after the sermons. Um, I had to explain the Bible passage that's being preached right after the service to my kids. And so that's, that was really unhealthy for us and we had a lot of struggle. And by the grace of God, um, and again, outworking of the ministry and needs for the training center as well, uh, we were able to launch a, a new church plant in Tokyo this past April. And we, uh, have, we have called it a Megumi Bible Church. Megumi is a Japanese word for grace. And um, so we are located in the middle of Tokyo. Uh, it's more of a commuter church. People commute that church we're commuting about an hour there and most of the members are commuting just about the same amount of time by trains and so forth um, but we have a, um, both English service and Japanese service uh, since there are so many internationals there living in Japan and we've experienced that um, though there are international churches uh, we really couldn't find any biblical um, pre- Bible preaching uh, international churches either. So for our family's sake as well as for the people f- um, there in Tokyo who speaks uh, who speak English as a main language, uh, we wanted to, to minister to them and and also for Japanese as well. In Tokyo there are about in Tokyo proper there's about 12 million people and the metal point in Tokyo um, covers probably over 20 million people. And we we often say that there is only 0.3% of population that are evangelicals of any colors. And those who are committed like us, us in terms of the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture, that, that number really shrinks quickly as well. So we have a great um, demand, um, both for the sake of evangelism, uh, for the sake of winning people for the kingdom of God, as well as training people because people are not being fed the truth of God. And Japan has never been a great um, mission field. And oftentimes uh, in a modern day mission history, uh, Japan has been kind of named as a uh, graveyard of mission missionaries. And oftentimes it's... Uh, Western missionaries find it very difficult to, to have successful ministry. And, um, and that's the, the place we're working at, both 
in training as well as in a church, local church ministry. I just wanted to, uh, you to pray for us as, as we continue to minister there. Um, really, we need um, believers to be mature. And the only way to do that is to, to really know the Word of God, to have the Word impact their lives. And there's no other tools that can do that, right? The Spirit of God within us works through the Word of God to change us, to take off our old self and put on the newness of Christ. And so we want to do that both in the training ministry as well as in the local church ministry. And also we want to really win the nation for the kingdom of God. So you want to do that uh, in, a, in a difficult challenging culture and society of uh, Japan and Japanese lifestyle. Uh, again, the believers need to, to become mature enough to live out Christian faith and so that they can shine as the beacon of light of the gospel among the other friends who are not believers. And so pray that we will be able to um, minister to many of the Christians as well as non-Christians so that the gospel will penetrate into the hearts of many Japanese people. And, and you, you, know, you can ask us any questions afterwards. Uh, we'll, and all of us will be more than happy to answer anything that you have in, uh, in mind in terms of uh, you want to ask us in, in ministry. But um, again, it's, it's a very difficult field. Um, and challenges everywhere, right? I mean, even here in, in the Bay Area, um, ministry is difficult. People are blinded. People's hearts are hardened. And lifestyles going against what God wants us to live. And there's a uniqueness in every place we minister to. But I wanted to um, share with you this morning and this is something close to my heart as well and I need to preach to myself this morning really um, and it's it's something to do with the, the joy of Christian life in light of the hardship that we experience and it's easy for us to rejoice when things are going well right and my heart rejoices when I see the, the Facebook post from Roger or from this church uh, showing there's new members uh, joining this church. That's a, a cause of a great joy, right? When the ministry is going well, when the life is moving smoothly, we have natural tendency to have joy. But, as you all know, that's not always the case, Right? And again, you are in a very difficult areas where your friends are very hard. And I'm in the in the, the region of in in, in the, the world where gospel ministry is very difficult. But you know, when you look at life of Paul and what he shows us in his example as well as what he teaches, he tells us to rejoice. Right? He tells us that we can have that joy. And that's something that we, I wanted to uh, share with you this morning. So please open your Bibles to Philippians. And Philippians 1. <clears throat> As you open, um, I'm going to look at uh, verses 18, the end of verse 18 to 26. And I, hopefully I can put that all in together in a, a lot of time this morning. But as you open it, let me, let me share what's going on in Paul's life at this point. Paul was in a prison in Rome, waiting to have the final verdict. It had been four years since he was first accused by the Jews in Jerusalem. He was held in Caesarea Philippi for two years, and then transported by the sea to Rome, during which he experienced a shipwreck that's in the end of Acts. Then now in Rome, 
Roman cell for two years. There was so much hardship in Paul's life leading up to this time, yet he considered all that as means for the greater progress of the gospel. That's what he says in chapter 1 verse 12 in Philippians. And because the gospel is spreading to more people, despite the fact that some acted against Paul, he considered all that went on and said, I rejoice. That's in 18, the beginning of the, uh, verse 18. And yet, Paul was not just rejoicing with regard to the past and present. He was certain that he will rejoice even into the unknown future. Why can he do that? How can he be so sure that he will rejoice as he waits in a Roman cell to hear the final verdict? It is one of the most personal sections of this epistle. Paul here shares with us four reasons Four reasons why he is so sure that he will rejoice. And it is my earnest desire, both for me and for you, to know his reasons, which is totally applicable to us. So that we can live like Paul, confessing the same words, I will rejoice. Look into the unknown future, as we live in this world, in the both in the the, the reason for many um, good blessing that causes us joy, and also all the challenges that we will face and difficulties. So let's read the text. I am going to read from verse eighteen at the very end. If you have a New American Standard Bible to the verse 26. Paul says this, Yes, I and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through, uh, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in this this flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. That's what Paul said. In verses 19 and 21, Paul writes a long sentence expressing his reasons why he says, I will rejoice. And the first one, I said four, right? First one is this. You live with joy because you have complete confidence in the outcome. You have complete confidence in the outcome. In other words, we can rejoice because we know that we will certainly be vindicated by God in the heavenly court. And you say, how do you get that from here? Let me explain. Paul's main verb for this long sentence appears at the beginning of verse 19. That is, I know. I know. The reason why he can say, I will rejoice, is because he knew something very important. But what did he know? What did he know? What did he know? He knew that this will turn out to me for salvation. This will turn out to me for salvation. That is what he says. This, 
here refers back to verses 12 and following. In other words, what happened to him? The condition of his imprisonment and his impending verdict before the Roman court. But what is the most significant what is the most significant with this sentence is not as obvious when you just read the text. Because what is interesting and very important here is that Paul is actually in this statement, this will turn out to me for salvation. In this statement, Paul is actually quoting Job 13.16. Job 13.16. Ver- verbatim from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. You wonder why he would do that, right? To understand this, we need to see a little bit of Job 13. This passage is found in the middle of Job's arguments with the three friends. They have accused Job for his hidden sin because they thought that Job must have greatly sinned against God in order for him to suffer so severely. But Job knew that was not true. So he wanted to plead his case with God. Look with me at Job 13, 15 through 18, where Job says this. He says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This, here's a quote, This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears, Job says. Behold now, I have prepared my case. I know, I know that I will be be vindicated. That's Job 13. 15 through 18. You see, Job's point was not the deliverance from the condition he was in. It's his vindication of righteousness before the highest court. Just as the Lord assessed Job as the most righteous man living in the beginning of this book, Job knew he had no hidden sin. And he is actually confident and certain that he will withstand the accusation of his friends and will be vindicated by God when he appears the highest court. And Paul, incidentally, quoting Job's words in the same way, saying that this present circumstance will indeed lead to his vindication in the heavenly court. No matter what the outcome of the earthly verdict may be, because he knew that he is living righteously before God. But how can Paul be so sure of this salvation? In these very difficult circumstances, Paul may find himself failing, right? I mean, although he was expecting the release, at the same time he had no idea what the verdict is going to be. And he had many friends who have fled and left him as well. There are chances. There are possibilities. But Paul maintains his his confidence because of the prayer of the Philippian believers which begins about, which brings about the necessary provision that is the Spirit. You see, Paul expresses the means by which he is led to salvation in the rest of verse 19. Namely, he says, through your prayers and the provision of of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul lists two things here, but expresses in, in in a way that these are closely connected, as if it is inseparable. Paul knows well that God is sovereign, and that he ordains his purposes and accomplishes those purposes. And yet, he also knows, Paul also knows, that God accomplishes those purposes in response to the prayers of his people. 
And so Paul says that it is through the prayers of his ministry partners in Philippi, the provision of the Spirit will come to Paul, which leads to his deliverance. Prayers of the saints were necessary for Paul in his ministry. And he often asked people to pray for him. You find that in 2 Corinthians 1.11, Romans 15.30-32, Ephesians 6.19, and, and more. Right? He often requested a prayer for his own ministry. He knew that the Philippians were praying for him. And that was why he was so confident. And I can totally relate to that. As missionary being prayed over by all of you. And it was funny. And I know I'm crunching time here. But I have to share this. One time I was teaching over a weekend at a church. And I got really sick. In the middle of it. As I was teaching... Saturday, usually it goes from Friday night to Sunday afternoon, and the 15 hour climb course. And by the, by the time I finished the Friday night, I had a, probably a high fever, and I was kind of wondering what's gonna be, cause we can't really reschedule those classes. And so, I prayed, I went to sleep, and next morning, I woke up, and there was like, bunch of notification on my iPhone as I looked at my phone in the morning when I woke up. All of them are from different churches and people from the church saying, writing, you know, we just had a, a meeting and we're praying for you. And that was a significant encouragement. And guess what? You know, it wasn't really a miraculous thing or anything like that, but I still had fever, but I was able to finish it through. And God gave us strength. You know, you guys are uplifting people. And your prayers do matter because God answers. I don't know how that really works with His sovereignty and our prayers, but He commands us to pray for each other, for the ministry that we are involved in. And that's what Paul was doing. Through your prayer, Paul says, comes the provision of the Spirit. While it's possible to understand this as, a, as what the Spirit provides, I believe that the Spirit is, con- is the content of provision here. What Paul needed the most in this situation was not the things that help his case, but the Spirit himself. He needed the Spirit as the support as he would face his trial before Caesar, to give an answer for the faith that lies within him. And Paul is confident in his ultimate verdict, ultimate vindication. Whether he would be released or sentenced to death, he knew that the Lord will find him righteous. He knew that the people were praying for him. He knew that the Spirit would help him. So he says that he will rejoice. When you have this confidence that all you desire for for will be yours in the end, as he will discuss later, your attitude of life greatly changes. And the question is, can you rejoice because you know that you will be vindicated too? Because God has already made you righteous. That when you appear before Him, you will be vindicated. No matter what you go through. Paul was confident that he will be vindicated. He knew how he would be vindicated. That is what we saw. But he is not done. Right? Paul tells us the reason he is confident that he will be vindicated. And this is our second point. You see, you will rejoice because you have absolute commitment to the goal. That's the second reason. Because you have absolute commitment to the goal. You see, Paul can rejoice because he is completely committed to one goal in his life. That is to magnify Christ. To magnify Christ. 
Paul adds a second prepositional phrase in this sentence. According to my earnest expectation and hope. That's what he says. Paul is saying that the turning of this situation into salvation is in harmony with his own aspiration. In effect, he told the Philippians, things will turn out just as I expected and hoped. The first noun, my earnest expectation, is often defined as the deconcentrated intense hope which ignores other interests and strains forward with an outstretched head. Can you picture that? There's such an intense expectation. Your neck goes long. Looking forward to it. The only other use of this word in the New Testament is found in Romans 8.19 where it describes the anxious longing of the creation the revelation of the children of God for the revelation of the children of God so that they can be freed from the present curse. So together with the word hope this phrase takes on a meaning certain eager expectation. In other words, this is what Paul lived for and what he pursued because it will be true of him in due time. It is the one thing that he wanted to live his life after. And he talks about that in chapter 3 for a long time. One thing that he longed for. But what exactly is this expectation? This is what we see in verse 20. He he, uh, expresses in a positive and negative way. Negatively first, his honest expectation and hope is not to be ashamed in anything. Not to be ashamed in anything. This has nothing to do with him being humiliated and put to shame by the people, by the public. Since Paul really did not care about what people thought about himself. Rather, His great ambition of life is that he is found shameless before his God. Paul was not concerned about whether he be released or not. He did not care much about what happens to his life. What he cared about was that nothing he does will bring shame to him as he stands before the Lord. Instead, Instead of not being ashamed in anything, positively, his earnest expectation expectation is that Christ will be magnified. Christ will be magnified. That is the idea conveyed here. He wanted to make Christ great. That's his single concern for life. The word magnified, that's a significant word as well. In order to grasp Paul's point, one pastor used an example of difference between microscope and telescope. Both of which operates in a principle of magnification. Right? And he says this, listen to this. this I think this is really to the point and very clear. A microscope and a telescope operate on very similar principles, but are greatly different. A microscope magnifies things that are small and make them appear larger than they are. That's how most people spend their lives. Giving their lives to things that are really small, but trying to make them seem larger. But a telescope simply allows us to see and to see more detail and grandeur of those things that appear small to us, but in reality are vast beyond our imagination. Christians are, in essence, to be telescopes. Not to make Christ larger and more impressive than He is, but we are simply to allow the naked eye to capture in slightly better vividness just a faint glimpse of His true greatness. 
of His true glory. Because He had a certain expectation that this will become His reality so long as He follows after Christ. That's what Paul wanted to do. Paul was consumed with the desire not to be ashamed in anything, but Christ will be magnified. How did he do this? It was with all boldness, which means him speaking out courageously. As always, even now, which means consistently of uh, consistency of faith, even since his conversion on the day when he was saved on the Damascus Road. In my body, which means throughout his life, whether through life or through death, which means no matter what the circumstances may be. This was a commitment, Paul. His life commitment. He strived for very goal at the moment, every moment of his life. He wanted to talk about Christ more than anything. He walked consistently since the day of his conversion. He finished his life well. For he had never quit being faithful to his Lord. He was committed to Christ regardless of what comes. Through everything that life brings to the very end and even through the process of death itself. He will not be ashamed but Christ will be magnified. This is the key to living a joyful life. He is challenging you and me today and see if you are committed. See if we are committed. He is asking you what is more important to you? To have the life and circumstances you want? To have comfort? To have good family? The joy of living out your dreams? Fulfilling job? Or for Christ to be magnified? Paul lived rejoicing because he was committed to one goal of and one goal only to magnify Christ. Can you say? Will you say with Paul, I will rejoice? Paul is so sure that he will rejoice because he has confidence and commitment. But there's more. The third reason why he will rejoice is this. You will rejoice because you have proper perspective on life and death. Proper perspective on life and death. We see this in the famous words of Paul in verse 21 where he says, For to me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. There is so much in this verse, this verse itself alone, that we really should spend sermon on it. But since I'm not allowed to that, let me highlight what is extremely important. This verse, verse 21, provides an explanation for the last phrase of verse 20. Why does he want to have Christ be magnified? Whether through life or through death. What we find in verse 21 is the answer. In this verse, we find Paul's reason. His reason to be. His reason for existence. Between verses 21 to 24, we see and understand Paul's heart closely. This is what Paul wanted to do. For Philippians to see and understand his thinking, his attitude about life and death. And though there was a good chance that he'd be released, Paul was still uncertain as to the exact verdict he would receive at the court of Caesar. Sentence to death was still a real possibility for him. Yet for Paul, the either Verdict, either verdict was an opportunity for rejoicing, whether it would be sentenced to death or sentenced to freedom. Because that is how he lived and how he faced death. The word to live is in a present infinitive, 
which speaks of the process of living. And by saying literally, to live is Christ, to live Christ, he says, there is nothing else. There is nothing else. All of life is summed up in Christ. For Paul, everything about life is Christ. Christ is his motivation. Christ is his focus. Christ is his desire. Christ is his direction. Christ is his pursuit. Christ is his purpose. Christ is his joy. Christ is his hope. Christ is his love. Christ is what he says. Christ is what he does. Christ is what he thinks. There is no area that isn't controlled and dominated by Christ. Paul considered everything he had accomplished as a rubbish, right? In comparison to knowing Christ. In Philippians 3.8. Galatians 2.20, famous words again. This is what he says. I no longer live, but what? Jesus Christ lives in me. Then he, ha- he adds, not only to live is Christ, but to die is gain. In contrast to living, which expressed the process of living, the word die refers to an event and its result. He is not advocating the process of decaying, right? He is talking about the time of death and its result. What is the result? Paul uses another rare word, which is gain. The word is used in a secular world to describe any gain or profit, particularly of interest made on money, investment. This sheds a great light to what Paul says here. For him, death is like collecting the interest from the investment of his life in Christ Jesus. You see, for Christians, dying is better. Dying is better because you will gain all that you sought after in this life that is Christ. While everyone else in this world tries to remove the concept of death as far as possible, Christians welcomes. Christians welcome death because it is gain for them. Don't get me wrong, okay? I gotta say this. Don't get me wrong. I am not advocating that you should die. Right? Life or death is something that God determines. It's not up to us. It's up to Him. So whether you live or you die, it really doesn't matter. If you live, you live your life for Christ with all-consuming passion to see Him magnified. If you die, you die knowing that you will be with Him and that you will magnify Him perfectly and completely forever. This is how Paul viewed his life and death. And this is how we should view our life, our lives, our life and death. I need you to remember that the only way you can say to die is gain, the only reason it is gain is because to live is Christ. It is something, if it is something else, you can never say to die is gain. John MacArthur says this, if living is wealth, then dying is not gain, but loss. If living is prestige, then dying is loss. If living is fame, then dying is loss. If living is power, then dying is loss. If living is possessions, then dying is loss. The only thing 
you can put in there to make the last part make sense is Christ. If you put in that blank anything but Christ, the last word has to be loss. Only Christ makes dying gain. Only Christ. Otherwise, it's lost. When you live with this perspective, you can say, I will rejoice. Just as Paul did. For all that you do in life brings ultimate gain. The fourth and the final reason Paul shares here is in the verses 22 and 26. You will rejoice because you have great ambition in life. Because you have great ambition in life. What is that ambition? It is to bring others to boast in Christ. It is to bring others to boast in Christ. Paul knew that to die is gain and that is very much better, he says. In fact, he says that is what he craves because for him, departing from this life means to be with Christ. So if he were to be self-focused and if he had the choice, it was clear that he would have chosen the death. However, Paul was not self-centered man who only sought after what benefits him. He knew that remaining in this life means fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. Especially for the sake of the believers in Philippi. He even calls it necessary. Right? It is necessary that he remained in his flesh. He had to put the two on a scale and asked, what shall I choose? To live or to die? On the one side is the death, which is gain. On the other side is the life, which is fruitful labor. He craved with all his being to be with Christ because after all, that was his desire. And he was convinced that it was necessary for him to remain serving others. He says, I know that I will remain and continue with you. For many of us, we will choose that which we want, that which we want, rather than that which we need. If the choice is between that which is which we crave and that which someone else needs, the decision is even more obvious, right? But for Paul, both to depart and to be with Christ, and to remain in flesh. To meet others' needs are equally good options. And he knows, even he does not get what he craves, he will rejoice. For his delight is to see others' delight in Christ. But for what will remain, what will he remain? Uh, But for what will he remain and continue? What we see in verses 25 and 26 is Paul's goals of ministry. His overall goal of life is to magnify Christ as we have seen. But more specifically, with regard to his life as fruitful labor, he delineates immediate goals as well as the ultimate goal of ministry. Those are the ambitions. There are two immediate goals which are again inseparably connected together in verse 25. The first is the progress. Right? Progress. And it means a movement forward to an improved state. Progress, advancement, and furtherance. That's a kind of a dictionary definition of it. 
Paul was needed for Philippians to make progress in the faith. He was like a trailblazer who went ahead of the army to make a way, make ways so that the army can advance. Philippians needed Paul to teach them the truth and show them the way. His life was necessary to advance their understanding of Christ and living for Christ. The second immediate goal is joy. As I said, these two are inseparable because true biblical joy is based upon true biblical understanding. His theology drove Paul to conclude that no matter what the outcome is, he will rejoice, right? And this is an experience of life unique to all who believe in Christ. Paul knew that he could impart the doctrine and model the life of a faithful Christian so that they can make progress in, in the faith and experience joy in their own lives. As wonderful as the immediate goals are, Paul was looking at something far better. And that is why he was torn between the two goods. The ultimate goal that caused him to say, I will rejoice, is found in verse 26. You can translate the verse as, so that your proud confidence may abound in Christ Jesus on account of me through my coming to you again. Or like ESV translates it, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify in Christ, glory in Christ Jesus. Ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. This is important. Paul understood that his remaining with them causes Philippian believers to glory in him, to be proud of him. When Paul comes, he will teach them and model them for their progress and joy in the faith, right? This will then bring about a greater boasting in Christ among the Philippian believers. But why is this so great? Boasting is an act of talking with excessive pride or self-satisfaction about one's achievement possession or ability. So that's boasting. While the word, world boasts on their own achievement, possessions and abilities, those who gain greater understanding of Christ will boast in what? Will boast in whose achievement? It's Christ's achievement. Will boast in His possession. Will boast in His abilities. They will rely on Him. They will trust in Him. They will be satisfied in Him. And they will delight in Christ. Paul talked often about what he boasted in, right? But he summarized all of it in Galatians 6.14 where he wrote, But may it never be that I would boast except except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, there is only one thing I boast in this world. That is, the cross of Jesus Christ. As Paul remained and continued with them, he knew he could impart the boast the very boast he had in Christ to abundance as he served the believers in Philippi. He really did not care about his comfort, his own comfort. He did not care about his own desire. He did not care about his own satisfaction. He did not care about his safety. He did not care about anything for himself at all. 
there is no doubt that imprisonment was not an attractive option for Paul. Yet he rejoiced. He rejoiced in it because he knew that the gospel had advanced. There is no doubt that being with the Lord is far better for Paul than to remain living in the flesh. Yet he rejoiced for the prospect of beloved believers to advance in their faith. Even in your life, circumstances far less than what you deem as ideal, you can live your life rejoicing. It is because you know that as you live for Christ, growing in the knowledge of Him and joy in Him, you can be an instrument to bring others to know Him more and boast in Him abundantly. More than your own desire to come true, you want to see His body, the church, mature. And His people delight in your Lord and Savior. And that's why Paul said, I will rejoice. Paul will rejoice no matter what he encounters in life. He knows that the good work God has begun in him will be, a com- uh, it will be completed in the end. And everything that he goes through in life is a process through which the work of salvation is complete, completed. He was certain that he will be vindicated. Paul will rejoice because his life is consumed with magnifying Christ. Every single moment of his life, he dedicated himself to the magnification of Christ so that people can see his Lord in his very being. It did not matter what he went through in life so long as Christ is praised and his gospel advanced. Paul will rejoice no matter what because Christ is the reason for his existence. And he considered death as his ultimate gain. When Christ is not the reason for existence, there are reasons not to rejoice. But that was not the case for him. Not for Paul. While people are afraid of death, for Paul, death was something to be welcomed because that is the moment he would gain all that he lived for. Paul will rejoice even if his ideal won't happen because he knows that he can serve the church to make all boast in the Lord abundantly. While God allows him to live, he knew he could use the gift God has given to edify others into maturity. Paul says, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Despite all the unfavorable circumstances of life, he rejoiced. Looking at uncertain future, he says, I will rejoice. Can you say the same thing? If you're a believer, I know you can. Because you know that you will, be, you will be vindicated. You know that your life purpose is to magnify Christ. You know that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you know that your ambition of life is to see His body delight and boast in Christ. So the question is this. Will I? Will you? Rejoice. No matter what. Because God wants you to do that. God wants you to live that way. Will you live your life as Paul lived? May God help us all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.
we thank you because you are so good. You have given us life, life eternal, that we can rejoice forever and ever. But that joy is not dependent on our circumstances of life, not in the everyday life here in this world. But that joy is based on the promise of eternal life, the eternal fellowship with you. And you will certainly give us that because that is your promise in Christ through His death and resurrection. So help us all to focus on that. I know there are challenges. I know there are challenges in ministry. I know there are challenges in life. Things will not work out the way we want it to work out. But Lord, we know that You are working things out for the best, for the good of Your people and for the glory of Your own name. So help us focus on that and live a life of joy desiring to see you being magnified. And that's what we all desire. Help us to live that way. Despite the challenges, despite the uncertainties, cause us to rejoice because of who you are. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.